Father, as we gather together to worship and to receive your word, we pray for the Holy Spirit to give us understanding. Your scriptures are a revelation to us, but we still need that impact of the Holy Spirit applying them to us so that that revelation becomes something we personally engage with. We see it clearly. We receive it. We can act upon it. Help us in that. We pray for our friends, brothers and sisters who can't be with us here today. Thank you that Ronnie is with us today, recovering from illness. Thank you, Father. Pray for Kevin, long-term sickness and Nikki Baker, who would love to be here, but she's also away. For Maurice, old, infirm, damaged by illness. And for Debbie, who is still dealing with her brother, who at least is getting better treatment now and seems to be recovering somewhat at Royal Free, we thank you for that release of pressure on Debbie. But we pray for our friends, think of our families, think of those who do not yet know you. We gather them before you, Lord, and say, have your Wonderful, gracious way with them, Lord. Bring your mercy to bear upon them, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, here's the health warning. I'm going to preach a little bit longer than I did the last week or two. Uh, It's not going to be 40, 45 minutes this time, but uh, let's let's, uh, let's get started together. Uh, I've got some, some difficult things to unpack with you today. We're going to start today... This is the second one in the series on loving God. I'm going to start today by picking up just one of the Old Testament scriptures again from last week. But the subject this morning is loving God and the law of God. Okay? Because Deuteronomy, on a number of occasions, says this, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him? Another place it says, Love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today, for your good. There's a whole series of things in that verse, but I'll unpack them as we go along. These references to loving the Lord in Deuteronomy continue into Joshua and are always connected to keeping his word, his commandments. So, loving God is inseparable from keeping his commandments. And for people under the old covenant, obeying the law of the Lord was how they were to love the Lord. We looked last Sunday at how this connection has continued in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, John 14 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. A few verses down. He who has who has my commandments and keeps them, doesn't just have them written up on a notice board on the wall or whatever, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. As the Father, next chapter, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide, remain, live in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may, be, may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Think for a moment here with me. In these words of Jesus, he claims that the law of Yahweh, of God, is also his law if you keep my commandments. Jesus gave us one new commandment, but he talks about keeping 
the other commandments too. The commandments of God are also the commandments of Christ the Son. They're his commandments. You can't separate the members of the Trinity. The eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the eternal Spirit are three in one. If we love him, we keep his commandments. John then in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, repeats and replies this teaching of the Lord Jesus, that if we love God, we will keep his commandments. It's how we show that we're children of God, born of God. We're not going to revisit those scriptures today. There isn't time to do so. But catch up last week if you need to, please. Loving God means keeping his law. But what law? And how do we keep it? Firstly, we need to deal with this often repeated objection. I wish I had how much? A fiver for every time someone's quoted this to me? You know? Oh, but we're not under law. Um, okay, let's go there. All right. For some Christians, the minute they hear anything about the law of God, they quote, not under law, the way that people brandish crucifixes at vampires in horror movies, you know? We're not under law. They rely upon, even if they can't reference, that is, they don't know where it's from, these two scriptures particularly. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Galatians 5.18, But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. To summarize what the New Testament clearly teaches, we are certainly not under the old covenant and the laws of Moses in these respects. Male circumcision. Sigh of relief from some people in the room. (laughs) (laughs) Levitical rules, sacrifices. That should be festivals, not festivals. Festivals, regulation. We are not under those laws that were given by Moses to the people of Israel. We're not under food laws either. And I could go through and prove all this to you, but we're not under the civic laws of Israel or the ceremonial laws of Israel given to, by the Lord through Moses. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles and elders met in Jerusalem to consider this, this problem. There were Gentile believers. They were not Jewish people. The men weren't circumcised. They didn't keep the food laws. And to, what were the apostles and elders of the gathered church and Antioch as well, which is a great church by then too, going to say to these Gentile believers? Because there were people who wanted them to be circumcised, to keep the laws, to obey the food laws, to keep the Sabbath, and all the rest of it. So they had a conflab together. We call it a council. And the answer to this question, should Gentile believers, Christians, go back under the law of Moses, be circumcised, the men be circumcised, they all keep the food laws. The answer was, guess what? Because we're then. No! emphatically, no, we are not put back under the law of Moses. It was decided. Paul's letter to the Galatians thunders that message out to the Christians who were being oppressed, really, by Judaizers, people who tried to make them back into being Jewish, put them back under Jewish laws and rituals and so on. And he says, You've been, it's for freedom that Christ has made you free. Don't go back under this yoke of bondage. Even the Jewish rabbis called the, the law and the traditions that they were under the burden of the law. So James, when he writes his letter from the Council of Jerusalem, says, we, we, we determined that we should not put you under any more burden than these three things, which were keep yourself from idols, stay from, away from sexual immorality, and don't eat uh, uh, meat that's been strangled. Okay? Just those three. 
None of the rest. None of the rest of the Old Testament law was to be given. So, and yet we are told, if we love the Lord, we'll keep his commands. Well, what commandments then? What law is it that we are still connected to? It is, my friends, the moral law of God. It is what the Ten Commandments point to, but are not in themselves, but they point to it. The Ten Commandments are summed up, even in the Old Testament, into two overriding commandments. Two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord Jesus taught clearly that all the law and the prophets were summed up in those two commandments, how we relate to God and how we relate to other people, to the rest of humanity. On those two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments put some flesh on those. Okay, Let me just read them from here rather than the whole thing. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven images, idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or his possessions or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, those scriptures there, Ten Commandments, let me just get down here. Notice this, that the, in the longer version, in the scriptural version, the commandment to not make idols hell ends with this, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It points to the issue behind it, loving God and following his ways. These ten words, for that's what they're called in Hebrew, were not written in a book, but on tables, tablets of stone, by the finger of God, it says in Scripture. They're of a different order to the rest of the Old Testament rules and regulations. They contain some elements that were specific to Israel, but they also contain in them a revelation of God's righteousness, what it requires of us, what is wrong, and therefore what is right. So I come back to this. I want to call that among you today God's moral law. Two commandments that summarize all of life in our relation towards God and towards others. And it's the moral law of God, really, that Jesus is referring to when he says this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fill them up. Here's the standard. Jesus said, I've come to complete the standard. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In Hebrew, uh, you, have con- you have consonants, you know, like, like P and N and S, and you don't have letters for the vowels. You have little mark dots, dashes, lines, that tell you how what goes between those two uh, consonants. And Jesus says, not one of those marks will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. It is the moral law that Paul speaks of in Romans when he says this, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. 
Or in the next verse, he says, the law is spiritual. It's from the spirit. The law is good and was given for our good. Do you know where the first law is in the Bible? Genesis 3. Well, 2 and 3. You can eat of every tree in the garden, but of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must eat. For in the day you eat of that, you will die. He gave them one law. Was that law good? Yes. Yeah, because God was keeping them from death. Yeah. The day you eat of that, you're going to die, and you'll, you'll continue to die, and you'll really die. Yeah. Satan deceived them into thinking that that restriction kept them from something good. You'll be like God. You'll know what he knows. No, that command was for their good. God is good, and his law is good. I'm saying it ahead of my notes, but we'll say it again in a minute. When Paul says those things about the law, he's echoing the words of the Psalms, where God's law is spoken of in this way. Let me just... I haven't written all these out. It would take too long. The law of the Lord, this is Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Uh, go and tell someone in the city of London that tomorrow. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. There's a much longer version of that sort of writing in Psalm 119, which you're scared to even touch. Just read it in chunks. You'll get through it. Here's my headline. God is good. You don't have to do the alternative. <laughs> and his law is for our good, to keep us from harm. The whole world, and not just Israel, is accountable to God's moral law. Not the, 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 the regulations which were Judaic for those people, but the whole law is given as an illustration to the world of what is good and what isn't good. And so... Since God's law measures and defines what is good, Romans 3 verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. It didn't say just Israel and the Jewish people. God's given his law so that something is highlighted to the world about what is good and what is not good, and therefore what is pleasing to God and what is not pleasing to God. What is helpful and what is harmful what is righteous and what is wicked. And the world is held accountable to God's law when they understand God's law. You say the moral law, the things that matter about this relationship with God and with one another, all of the issues that are Old Testament, and people say, oh, that's the Old Testament, David. Here's my headline. All of those are confirmed in the New Testament Scriptures. All of those issues. Those commandments, they're confirmed, they're reaffirmed in the New, Test New Testament. We are still to Lord, live, love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength, and keep his commandments. Jesus taught it. And lying and stealing and killing and defrauding are all again held up to the light 
and declared in New Testament scripture to be wicked, to fall short of the glory of God. These things are repeated. And uh, if you're going to be embarrassed, cover your ears, but let's talk about sex for a moment. People wish to dismiss God's law with what God's law says about sexual behavior. Oh, that's just the Old Testament. We're not under law, we're under grace. Well, those boundaries of what is right and wrong in sexual behavior are all restated in New Testament Scripture. Fornication, adultery, homosexual sex, even gender confusion. What the Old Testament law prohibited, the New Testament still holds up as being not good. Not right. When governments and others are forced by our Freedom of Information Act, which we have in here and we have in America, to publish something they'd rather not publish. They go through a copy before it's released and redact sections, and they look like that. Whole words and sentences are blacked over. Of course, nowadays you can do it digitally. You don't have to st- sit there with a, with a, a, a fountain pen or something. And there are many people today who want to redact the Bible. They want to ignore what the Old Testament scriptures say, but it isn't just Old Testament scriptures, what the Old Testament scriptures say about sexual practices and other sins. But if you're going to use a redaction pen on the Bible, you've got to go from the very beginning to right to the very end, because these things are written through scripture, because it is God's word on the subject including some of the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself. The scriptural references to sexual behavior are not Old Testament law, which is wiped away by the gospel of grace. They are repeated in the New Testament. Now, working a different way, Thomas Jefferson, who was an American president in the early 1800s, um, he went, there's a thing that they call Jefferson's Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a mis, uh, kind of way of saying it really Uh, Thomas Jefferson went through the gospels not the whole bible through the gospels and he literally cut out the parts he agreed with and and pasted them into a journal and then he had that published in 1820 as a book he excluded everything where Jesus was referred to as being God the deity of Christ and to all the miraculous and supernatural things healings miracles and the resurrection of Jesus and he put out, this is, this is the real life of Jesus, and this is the real teaching of Jesus. And so, this is not Jefferson's Bible. This is what was left when Jefferson took the bits he wanted. All right? And whether it's... That's what people are doing to the Scriptures today, blocking out what they don't want to hear, snipping out what they do want to hear. All right? Okay, here's the headline. Grace does not erase truth. Grace keeps and obeys the truth. We're not empowered by the gospel to go against what God has said is wrong. We're empowered by the gospel to do what he says is right. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, law is usually used in the sense of restricting things. Truth doesn't, just, doesn't restrict you, it empowers you. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know that scripture. Truth empowers you and truth with grace and the spirit, as we'll see in a while, empowers us to fulfill the law. Not by addressing a list of don'ts, but by doing some things which, which, show, which fulfill God's moral law. Yes. To love him, 
to love our neighbor as ourselves, and as Christians, to love one another as Christ has loved us. We looked at that last week. Now, because we looked at the Ten Commandments, and I'm, I'm getting them, getting through, you may be thinking at this point in time, what about the Sabbath? Okay? Now, this is a contentious issue for many Christians, so let me just give you my understanding on it today. What about the Sabbath? Um, I'm going to write these notes out again. Yeah, you're all saying, yeah, that's a good question, David. I'll get there. Well, how does the Bible define Sabbath? You shall work six days, and on the seventh day you will rest. For on the seventh day God rested from his labor. He made the world in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. So the very heart of the Sabbath in the Old Testament is a rest from work. Scripture goes on to remind us the work that God made the world in six days. Nowhere in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scriptures, was the Sabbath kind of laid out as being a day of religion or ritual. It's not described that way. It's a day to be home with your family and to eat and have conversation. In fact, you, the, the things you're commanded to do that day are rest and teach your children. Have conversation with them. Do some child rearing, you know, by having, by having discussion times. You will talk with them. Those are what's commanded. Rest and family time. Crucial, valuable family time when things get talked about together. Our society suffers very much today from a lack of such a day of rest. By the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had wrapped all sorts of additional traditions around the Sabbath, and since their return from exile, synagogue attendance on that day too. It moved from being a, being a day of rest to being a day of religious observance. But that's not how God defined it originally. And Jesus broke their Sabbath, their Sabbath rules. He didn't break Scripture. He broke their Sabbath rules. And, but when he did so, he declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath's mine. I'll do with it what I want to do with it. Yeah? That's what he's saying. Sabbath belongs to me. Again, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. The Sabbath is his. He de- decides what's appropriate on the day of rest. The Jewish people to this day, of course, continue to worship God on the Sabbath and the Seventh-day Adventists, let me break that down for you. They're Seventh-day because they worship on Saturdays and they're Adventists because they believe in the, 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 the return of Jesus. I'm a First-day Adventist. I worship on the first day and I believe that Jesus is coming back too, all right? They say not only that they believe they should do it, but they believe all Christians should do it. And we're not really very good Christians if we don't do what they do, which is worship on the seventh day. I believe the pattern of Scripture is this. You're free to choose the day. If you want to, pre- if you want to do your preaching and teaching and worshipping on the seventh day, go ahead, do it. But that's a matter of conscience and choice, not a matter of you're not obeying the law doing that. All right? But Jesus was raised from the dead on the... The answer is first. First day of the week. And we see in the book of Acts a kind of double pattern emerging. We say, oh, you see, they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Yes, they did, because everywhere they went, Paul and his, his entourage took the gospel first to the Jewish people. <coughs> Excuse me. Where were they? Where could you find them? You could find them in synagogue on the Sabbath. <coughs> so when they entered a town, for the first week or two or more, 
Paul went to the synagogue and sought to bring the Jewish people to faith in Jesus. And when they rejected him, he then went to the Gentiles. And so you find Sabbath mentioned in terms of them attending synagogue to talk to Jewish people. But whenever in the New Testament you read about Christians gathering together, and I'll give you two examples from the book of Acts, the believers gather together when? On the first day of the week. Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week. In Revelation 1.10, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's a new phrase. That's not occurred before in Scripture, the Lord's Day. The Sabbath was never called that, the Lord's Day. We're not talking about the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. It's the last day, the end of days. This is the Lord's Day, something that happens regularly. And if you go through, and I didn't print any, but I will if you want some, if you go through, uh, not scripture, but real Christian writing that goes from the AD 60s right up to the AD 400s, you'll find the testimony of those early Christian writers is uniformly Christians gathered together on the first day of the week. On a Sunday, because it was the day of Christ's resurrection. And those writers call it what John called it, the Lord's Day. Our worshipping the Lord together on Sunday is not keeping the Sabbath. Taking one day a week to rest from work and be with your family is keeping Sabbath. I was trained as a young Christian leader that as a priority, I was to keep one day a week as a day off and spend it with my wife and, if possible, with my family. And since Sunday is a busy and demanding day for church leaders, that's what church leaders are trying to do. But for many of us, Sunday may be a mix of gathering together to worship and teaching and then to spend the rest of the day resting, eating, having conversation with family and friends. God's law simply commands us to not work seven days a week but to rest one of them. That's what it simply commands us. By the way, the reformers tried to kind of stick Sabbath into Sunday and argue that it got switched. And I don't think the Bible goes there and I don't think we need to do that. And I don't think that, you know, if keeping Sabbath means you can't go to church, well, I don't know why they would go. Keeping Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament Scriptures. That's interesting, isn't it? It's the only one that's not repeated in the New Testament Scriptures. All the other nine are reaffirmed. You can think about that some more. So that's what to say about Sabbath. Um, Let's get back to the bigger issue. Christians are accountable to the moral Lord of God, but we're not condemned by God's law. We, live, we don't live under the curse of the law. We've been saved from the curse of the law. Jesus died to redeem us from the curse of the law. The commandments which were against us and contrary to us and proclaimed our guilt were, Paul says, you know, it's as if they were nailed to the cross. We're justified, not condemned. But God's law points us to righteousness. These moral issues point us to righteousness. The standards for our way of life as believers. Through grace, we keep God's law. We fulfill it. How? Well, I need to take you through very quickly the tale of three laws in Romans. I found a nice graphic and I put the lettering over it. I like that. I was pleased with that one. The three laws in Romans. I tried this out on the men's group on Tuesday, didn't I, guys? Yeah. Tale of three laws, Okay. How to summarize a very long argument, in fact, in gauges over about 12 chapters of Romans, and about three or more in Galatians in a few minutes. Well, here goes. I'll try to do it. Number one, first law is the law of God. 
In Romans, from, first chapter, from chapter 1 through to about the end of chapter 6, Paul starts by speaking a lot about the law of God. The law measures and defines righteousness and sin, what is good and therefore what is evil. It shows us the life we were meant to live, how God made us to be. But because we don't do that, the law defines sin as what breaks God's pattern, what dishonors him, and therefore, to use the phrase, what falls short of the glory of God. Therefore, every human being is, by definition, defined by the standard of God's law, a sinner. You say that to some people, and they're going to slap you up. (laughs) Who are you calling us? Well, we all are. Because we all break God's law. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't use the law as a pathway to acceptance with God because you can't keep it. It's not a ladder to heaven for you to climb. You can't do that. You can't do that. You, I, I remember when in days we used to evangelize on the doorsteps. Of, I'm a good person. I keep the law. And I think, do you, what, the law of God? Oh, yes, yes. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. It's like, what? You can't climb your way to God up the ladders of the Ten Commandments. The rungs of the Ten Commandments, I mean. Because you can't really keep them. Remember Jesus, how Jesus said, you know, you... You know the law that said you shall not kill? He said, but if you hate someone in your heart, you wish you could kill them. And you know the law said don't commit adultery? But if you look at a woman and said, I'd commit adultery with her if I could, you've done it in your heart. He says, you've, you've, the law's found you out. Yeah? You're not excused just because you didn't actually do it. It's speaking to the nature of our beings that, this is way we, what, we, what we are. This is what we do if we had opportunity. The law of God. We cannot keep the law of God because there is something else. So this is now law number two, the law of sin and death. Listen, don't get this wrong. The law of God, Ten Commandments, whatever, is not the law of sin and death. It's because of the law of sin and death that we can't keep God's law. The law of sin and death is another thing that's working in us. I'm going to print these notes in future. I don't know I'm doing all my year after time. Sorry. Print them out, David. Taylor, three laws. So, Paul goes on, and we're into Romans 7 now. That was a quick journey, wasn't it? Six chapters of Romans in five minutes. He says that whilst the law is good and holy, He, we, can't keep the law because another law is at work within us. It's called the law of sin and death and it's been operating in the human race since the fall of man. We can't keep God's law. Oh, we can actually avoid killing somebody. We might might avoid actually committing adultery. But as Jesus taught us, the law measures our hearts, our motives. What would we do if we had opportunity and thought we could get away with it? In fact, such is our wired-in rebellion against God and whatever he says to us, that when the law says something to us, it actually provokes us to do it. We're provoked by the law to do what's been forbidden. Paul gives the illustration of, I didn't know what coveting was. The law says, thou shalt not covet. And I went, what's coveting? When he thought about it, he said, I found I was coveting all the time. And I found I wanted to covet even more. 
And if you don't understand that thing of provocation, try this with a small child. You say to them, don't touch those cakes over there. That is why by the works of the law, Galatians 2 verse 16, no flesh, no human being will be justified. You cannot justify yourself by keeping the law. We can't be justified because humanly speaking, we can't do it. It measures our unrighteousness, our failure, not success in pleasing God. Now Paul was of course a deeply devout Jewish man. In fact, he was a leader of the Jews and he was well learned. He was like a professor of the law. He loved the law and he wanted to please God. But here he is in Romans 7 describing a struggle that he found within himself. I know the law. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is spiritual and pure. But I can't do it. The more it gets beyond just, you know, events into my heart and my motives, the more I'm measured and I'm found to be a man of sin. Here it is in Romans 7. I find then a law that, is e- e- that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. We need help. God has given us his good law, but we can't keep it. The power to do it isn't in us. In fact, we're wired to rebellion. Therefore, no wonder that Paul cries out at the end of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's quite a cry, isn't it? Who's going to deliver me from this body full of sin, this, this heart that's full of sin? But the answer begins in the next verse. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. In the very next verse, the answer begins. And it goes on into chapter 3. In chapter, sorry, Romans 8 and law number 3. We discover a third law that breaks the deadlock between the law's demands and our inability. It's called here in Romans 8 the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? And I checked the Greek, and it's no, 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 no easier in the Greek than it is in English. It's the spirit of, the law, of, of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 8, verse 1 to verse 9. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who in, in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, according to that fallen human nature, but according to the spirit, capital S, they're following the Holy Spirit who's at work with them and in them. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That thing that that works in me, that means I can't obey God. God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now get that? that we might live up to the measure, the standard that the law asks of us. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, fallen human nature, but according to the Spirit, capital S. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be fleshly minded, carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded, following the spirit, is life and peace. Because the human fallen mind, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. It's always at odds with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. 
So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Way back in Romans 3, verse 27, Paul talks about the law of faith. That's another way of describing this change, this third law that's at work in us. And we're saved by God's grace and power, authority, through faith. So let's go back where we started, Romans 6. Remember that? You're not a law but under grace? Here it is in context. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 6, verse 12. The argument is we've been crucified with Christ and raised with him to newness of life. Yeah? We acted out in baptism. Raised, sorry, first buried, old life gone, raised, new life in Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Better modern word, appetites. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, all the parts of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you For you are not under law, condemned by it, unable to do it. You're under grace. And because you're under grace, sin no longer rules you. You can aspire to measure up, to fulfill all that God answers us. What then? Now here's a good question, very logical question. And this is where people get the wrong answer to this question. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? doesn't matter what we do. We're under law, under grace, aren't we? Certainly not, is the answer. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you're that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin... You became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But just as you presented your members in the past, he's saying, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Notice the expression there, lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Don't just live by a list of don'ts. Go and do what is good and right and fulfill what you're called to live. The life you were made for. To live under the law of God, which is his moral law, is encompassed for us Christians in three. Love God with all you are. Love your brother and sister as Jesus loves you. Love your unbelieving neighbor and the rest of the people around you as you love yourself. And when we do that, we fulfill the law. We overcome the law of sin and death by the grace of God, by the help of the Spirit, by receiving new life in Jesus. We're We're set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus to keep and fulfill the law of God. The highest law, the moral law. We can do it. Because he's at work in us. Because what Jesus came to do, he now does in us. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from that rebellion, free from that disobedience, free from that lawlessness, to live in God's ways and to please him. You're very quiet this morning. 
God's good law, which can only condemn those who live by their fallen sinful nature, is fulfilled in those who are empowered by the Spirit to live by faith in Jesus and follow his ways of love. So Christians, empowered by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit, keep God's law. They don't offend against it. They don't break any of the moral instructions of the Scripture. Because we as Christians are law keepers, not law breakers. Grace does not excuse you to break God's instructions, to do the opposite of what he asks of us. I nearly prayed earlier on God protect our property and properties today. That's a good one. Yes, please do, Lord. Um, Joe and I were both concerned about that big tree, which is just like stands about there, just across the pathway there, because that's top heavy. That, that could be a problem. We are law keepers, not law breakers. So when anyone says, I, I, I'm not ashamed of doing this because I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Well, no, you got it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We as Christians are empowered by the grace of God to be those who keep God's law. And all of God's law that still apply to us, and I've highlighted the ones that do, are good. Therefore, are good. They're to keep us in health and from harm. They're to save us from condemnation and death. We can't keep them without Christ. We can't keep them without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't keep them by being given new life. But having received the gift of grace through faith, we can live to please God. Now, that might sound revolutionary to you, but it's what I was raised all my life to believe. It's what we're called to do and we're, not, we're equipped now to do it. We were incapable before. But now we are set free from the law of sin and death. And if we follow the Spirit and we stay in the truth and we obey the Lord, we're not under law, we're under grace. The very business of legalism is this. I've got this list of don'ts. And interestingly, when I was a kid growing up, you know... Sadly, let me just be honest about this. The Pentecostal church was, in many places, very legalistic. They didn't just have like 10 commandments. They had about 20, (laughs) including you shall not wear jeans and you shall not go to the cinema and you shall not dance and you should, you know. Anybody remember those days, any of those things? Yeah, all that kind of legalism. So Christianity was defined as a list of don'ts. Oh, Lord, what a horrible idea. Now, some of those don'ts are good sense because they keep us from harm, especially the Ten Commandments, all right? Let's not just be, you know, some of those didn't matter at all, but some of them. But Christian life is not defined by a list of restrictions. It's defined by freedom now to live as we could never have lived before. To live by the grace of God for the glory of God. To do what we could not do, which is to obey Him from a full heart. Finally, that's a five-minute finally. This scripture in Jeremiah goes to the very heart of this new covenant that Jesus came to make. You know, the old covenant was only temporary. The whole circumcision thing and then the Moses thing and all of the laws of Israel, they were, they were temporary. They were like a, a stud, like a tutor to keep children in order until Jesus came. The law was like a tutor 
to keep order. And to this day, we have laws to keep order. Some of them are pretty crazy. They, governments think they can pass laws that change people's minds and hearts. You can't do that. You can only punish them for doing things wrong. Anyway, this is the new covenant. Promise the new covenant, Jeremiah. It's a very crucial, central scripture about what the new covenant is about. It's what Jesus came to do. I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's moral law, the issues that, about what please him and honor him and what, what dishonor him and are harmful to us, and that it's not just good for him that we keep his law, but it, it's good for us that we keep his law. He doesn't now write with his finger on tablets of stone. He writes them in our minds and in our hearts. We're motivated to do what is pleasing to God from the inside. Not by a list on the wall, but because these issues, these core issues of what is good and what is not good are written into us. We have consciences that tell us what is good and not good. But our conscience, which was once even maybe dead or maybe only half dead when we were unbelievers, is now made alive. Now, don't do what you know to be wrong because your conscience gets damaged when you do that. And if you keep damaging it, it can be like it's, like it's burned. It's, 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 it's burned by fire because you keep doing you know, the thing you know to be wrong. It's written in the hearts of New Covenant people. His law written in us so we can keep it. We can more than just keep a list of don'ts. We can fulfill what the law was really pointing to. A life of love to God and love to others that does no harm to others because we would not wish them to do harm to us. When we follow the Spirit, when we follow the law of love, we will be fulfilling God's law. So in Romans 13, here's Paul summing up this argument, the three laws and what that produces in us. The third law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, sets us free from the law of sin and death, so we are connected again to God's good law. Issues are good. Romans 13.8. Owe to no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Going right back to Romans 2, that's what Paul meant in Romans 2 when predicting where he was going with this argument. He says, Gentiles who do not have the law who by nature do the things in the law, although they don't have the law of Moses, are a law to themselves. They show that the law, the work of the law is written in their hearts. Now, if Paul's saying that about somebody, that's a new covenant person. They're a believer. They're a Christian. They show that God has written his law in their hearts. So they're by nature doing things they didn't even know about because they were never raised that way in the old covenant. He's speaking of Gentile Christians who have God's law written in their hearts. Loving God is inseparable from keeping his commandments. The Lord through Moses put those two things together. Jesus puts them together. His disciple John repeats and applies the teaching of Jesus. Jesus did not come to take away the moral center. 
the core of God's law. But through faith in Jesus by the Holy Spirit, we receive new life so we can live within his good and perfect law. We're set free from the law of sin and death. Our hearts are tuned to love and obey God and also to love others. When we follow the Spirit and God's law of love, including the new commandment of Jesus, that believers love one another as he's loved us, we find ourselves fulfilling his commandments. We're not checking a don't-do list. That's merely legalism. So I want to ask you two questions, and I've done this a lot quicker than I thought, but I've been talking too fast probably. First of all, someone may be sitting here feeling really quite, oh my goodness, look at my, what, what is he talking about? Maybe you recognize this morning that the law of sin and death is at work in you. You know what's right, but you never get there. You just can't seem to. There's an answer to that. Who will deliver me? Jesus will. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Come to the Lord Jesus. Ask him to fill you with a new life through the Holy Spirit so that a greater law than that law of sin and death begins to be at work in you. You begin to be raised out of that cycle of my conscience. He's always telling me this is wrong and I never can stop doing it. There is, a, there is breakthrough. There is freedom in Jesus. You need a greater power than the power in you. You think... If I, if I just think hard enough, if I get up enough willpower, I'll break this. No, you need Jesus to save you. He's the saviour. He's the rescuer. That's where the breakthrough is. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then for some of you, you feel this law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus in you. Uh, but it's like stop, start. Listen, you need to make a determination, a decision. I'm going to follow the spirit. I'm going to follow the ways of God's love. I'm going to follow what I feel in my heart is the right thing to do and not be influenced by what the world tells me is their opinion, which is contrary to God's ways. When you pursue the spirit, when you follow the ways of love, God's moral values you will find yourself fulfilling the commandments of God. You won't be ticking off the don't list. You'll be busy doing a do list. Which is positive, loving, and is good for you. You'll find it's good for you. You know what, Romans 8, you discover the good and pleasing and acceptable will of God. You say, my word, this is good for me. Okay. I just said that scripture which we've run around different ways already this morning. Sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law held there and condemned by it, but you're under grace. We're set free from slavery to sin, but we've become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. We're set free and empowered to love him and compete to keep his commandments. And for, for us, they come down to, they are not even ten, they're three. Love God with all our being. Love one another as believers as he's loved us. And love our neighbors, those who are not believers, they're not brothers and sisters. They include your family as we love ourselves. Let's pray together. Lord, we've looked at some high 
bold things in Scripture this morning, and I've crammed them into a relatively short time. But help us, Lord, not to see them as being beyond us, above us, but they land in our hearts. They begin to register and tick away, pointing us to a different way of life than the one we've been living. One which is by grace through faith, through the power of the Spirit. But it is a positive life of knowing you, loving you, learning to love others, learning to love our brothers and sisters. And as we do so, we're not condemned by a list that tells us all the things that are wrong and all the things which you hold the world to account for. But rather we find ourselves fulfilling the law because you have written it in now in our hearts. Thank you, Father. We thank you that this new covenant is so much greater, so much fuller, so grander, much grander than the old. In fact, the old had a, a kind of majesty to it, but this, this new covenant in Jesus, by, sealed by his blood, is full of majesty and glory and wonder. We haven't even begun to explore the riches of your grace, really. Thank you, Lord. Now let me just hone that in a bit. If you feel condemned by God's law this morning, the answer is Jesus. He redeems you from the curse of the law. He brings you out from under that condemnation. Gives you the opportunity to live a new life in him, trusting him. Why don't you ask him? When you turn to him and ask him today, to give you a new start. Let today be the first day, not just of a new week, but of a new life for you. On the first day of the week, the Lord's day, the Lord is speaking to you. He wants you to respond to him. Brothers of us, we so easily slip into a kind of mentality of, I don't feel like I'm quite making it, but, you know, God's grace is just forgiving me. Well, well, Listen, we need, a, we need some of a bounce up in our thinking. We need to, be, we need to stop looking at the, what's underneath the trampoline and look what's further up in the, the air, up wider view. The wider view is, sorry, that's a hopeless analogy. The wider view is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. I can learn to be what God intends me to be. Not just getting success or whatever in life, but being the person he made me to be. Full of hope, full of love, full of faith, full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit. Fulfilling his law, not by ticking a list, but by following the Spirit and the way of love. That, my brother, my sister, is what you're called to. That's what God wants for you. Don't lower your vision. Don't look down. Look up to him. Take a moment and bring your own prayer to him, please, before you break bread.